0: Greetings, church. My name is Mike Myers. For those of you that don't know me, I am the pastor of Family Life here at Rest in Bible Church, and it's my privilege to get to share with you all out of the Word of God here this morning. I want to start off, however, by reading a quote to you that's not from the Bible. I'll tell you where it's from in just a second and how it connects to what I want to say this morning. Here's what it is. I shall therefore speak my mind here at once briefly, that neither did any other city ever suffer such miseries, nor did any age ever breed a generation more fruitful in wickedness than this was, from the beginning of the world. Those words are from the Jewish historian uh, Flavius Josephus, and it is from his book called Antiquities of the Jews, uh, chapter uh, book 5, chapter 10, if you're interested in looking it up. Uh, Josephus, again, was a Jewish historian. He lived during the time period that's covered by the book of Acts. And he lived right up to and was an eyewitness to the Jewish-Roman war that led to the destruction of Jerusalem, that led to the destruction of the temple, and the official and complete end to the sacrificial system, and thus the end uh, to the old covenant age. And the city that he referred to in those very difficult words, very harsh words, was Jerusalem, the city of peace, the city of God. You see, Jerusalem leading up to and during the seven years uh, of that war that would lead to her destruction had been divided into factions. And those factions visited the most grievous inhumanity on each other, and on the innocent citizens caught between them. In fact, by the time the Romans entered the city and destroyed the temple, they had practically no one left to fight because those factions had starved, tortured, and killed one another nearly to extinction. Now, the Romans were not unfamiliar with barbarism, and yet what they saw before them even shocked their senses. In fact, it would be completely inappropriate for me to read to you some of the excerpts that Josephus records to us about those times. But for our adult audience that's interested in going and looking, there are versions of Josephus' work online in English. And I think as you look at it, you will see in very clear, stark terms what Jesus meant in Matthew 24 when he said to his disciples these words. He said, For then there will be great tribulation, such as not, ha, has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. It will give you insight into why Jesus, as he entered Jerusalem for the last time, stood on the Mount of Olives and wept and said those words, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Times of upheaval and times of division, but also times when the gospel would be preached in the whole known world. Now, we are living in some very interesting times. These are times of upheaval and times of division as well. And as followers of Jesus, children of the living God, we need to make sure that we always have a heavenly perspective on the tribulations of this world. We shouldn't be surprised or perplexed by them because God told us that they would come. Every generation of Jesus' followers have had their tribulations, and we shouldn't expect to be any different. And the reason is that ever since the inauguration of the kingdom, some 2,000 years ago, darkness in its death throes has raged against the kingdom of Christ. The capability for evil that exists in the human heart shouldn't surprise us as followers of Jesus because God clearly reveals that to us in his word the powers and the principalities of spiritual evil and the heavenly places that take advantage of the fallen human heart to sow confusion and oppression and division also shouldn't shock us or surprise us because, again, they're clearly revealed to us in Scripture. Now, the knowledge of this should by no means diminish the seriousness of the trials that we find ourselves in, but it should bring perspective. We shouldn't use this knowledge to minimize the injustice and the sin that we see in the world around us, but we should use it to rightly orient ourselves to it. Now see, the the, the first followers of Jesus, the disciples who heard his words in person, they knew this viscerally. They lived it. And as bad as things have gotten at different times in history, the tribulation that they went through has not been equaled. So what can we learn from them? As you turn in your Bibles with me to chapter, Matthew chapter 25, I want to give you a little bit of background uh, of what was going on just prior uh, to these verses. So here's the background. Jesus had just left the temple for the last time after a very tense uh, intense confrontation with the religious leaders of the time. And as they were walking out of the, te- out of the temple area with his disciples, I think, this is just my take, I think the disciples were trying to sort of break the tension after that interaction. And so they looked around at the temple buildings and they pointed them out and they said, Jesus, isn't this beautiful? Isn't this temple and these buildings beautiful? But rather than Jesus allowing them to, to, to break the tension, allowing for the tension to ease, turns to them and says, Not one stone of these will be left upon another. And then he goes on to describe to them a period of persecution, a period of tribulation that they would undergo, that they would be years where the the kingdom of God would, would advance around the world, that they would be a part of that advance, but that it would be a time of tribulation like they had never experienced before. They themselves would be persecuted and even killed by their countrymen they would have to flee to escape from being collateral damage in the judgment that was to come on Jerusalem. And again, we know from historical records, Josephus among them, that these predictions of Jesus came true in the lives of the disciples. Now, towards the end of chapter 24, Jesus asks a rhetorical question. After this rather stark description, Jesus says to the disciples this, he says, who then is the faithful and wise servant the disciples were given a very bleak picture an alarming picture but what they needed to know in the moment wasn't why is this happening or how can we escape it or how can we make it stop because jesus was pretty explicit in telling them that these things must happen but what they needed to know was how were they to live as representatives of the messiah in those times And I would say that we have the same question to ask ourselves. Now, this message hopefully will be short and simple, straightforward, but I think the application that we'll find in Jesus' words will be profound in our lives. Because in these times of upheaval, these times of division and tribulation, not nearly to the magnitude that they suffered in the first century, but still, as followers of Jesus, we need to ask ourselves these questions. How should we respond? Because popular culture gives us one vision. But I would say that if you dig a little bit below the surface of that vision, and I think you'll begin to see the outcome of that vision unfold as days go on, that that vision that the pop culture, the popular culture wants to give us is, is anti gospel, it's anti grace, and it's anti Christ. We have to look as followers of Jesus, as in all other situations, we need to look to our master for what he says should be our response and not take our cue from the world. As a good rule of thumb, if the news media, social media, Hollywood, and the recording industry all agree on what our response should be to any situation that should give you pause and question whether or not that response is the response of Christ. And Pastor Minner once told me that you should always look for where a movement came from before you throw your lot in with it. Scripture asks us the rhetorical question, what has the kingdom of light to do with the kingdom of darkness? And I say it's a rhetorical question because the answer is clear. Nothing. Now listen to me carefully here. This is not to say that we do not respond to injustice and sin because we must. I'll say that again. I am not saying that we do not as Christians respond to injustice and sin, because we must. Christ compels us to. But we must respond in the way of Christ. Let me also just say here that what Jesus is presenting in these passages is not a roadmap to salvation. It's not a roadmap to entering the kingdom. Please pay attention on this one. There is one path to salvation. There is one entrance to to the kingdom. And that path, that entrance is clear. Jesus is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And it is only by faith in Him, by His finished work on the cross, by His victory over sin and death in His resurrection, that we have salvation, that we are called into the kingdom of God, that we are given the right to be called children of God. But what He is sharing here is how His followers once saved and empowered by his grace and freely forgiven, live in the midst of tribulation as a faithful and wise servant of the king. It's interesting because if you look at the New Testament, this is a book that came out of, was written in the midst of some of the most tumultuous years in the history of the world. And it really is a handbook for Christians on how the faithful and wise servant is to live in the midst of upheaval, in the midst of injustice, in the midst of sin and persecution. So let's jump in. Uh, Jesus, in very typical Jesus fashion, after he asks the rhetorical question, doesn't just answer it with three simple points. Instead, he tells three stories. And the first of the stories that he tells is about ten young ladies who went out in the night to wait for the groom to arrive at a wedding. Now, In this story, there were five a foolish young ladies and five wise young ladies, the foolish young ladies took their lamp with enough oil in the lamp, um, the wise but no, no backup, and the wise young ladies took oil, their lamp, and some backup oil. And in the story, as you, you can go and read, uh, that Jesus was telling the, the, the groom delays. And because the groom delays, the oil runs out, and the foolish young ladies need to go back to town. Once the groom arrives on the scene, they need to go back to town to find oil and purchase new oil. And while they're gone, the groom arrives, the wise young ladies are, enter into the, the party, and the foolish young ladies miss it. Jesus gives us the moral, or the, the idea, the big idea, of the story at the end, and here's what he says. He says, Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Watch therefore. The point of this story is that you, as a faithful and wise servant, need to be prepared. You need to be on the lookout. The word watch there carries with it the sense of an action, like a soldier at watch on a wall, being prepared for whatever is going to come, being ready for action at any given moment. Now, I don't know how about you guys, but how many of you can relate to that sinking feeling that you get in your stomach when you are unprepared for something? It's an awful feeling. It's, in fact, to be honest with you, it's a feeling that is probably one of my greatest motivations for being prepared for anything because I dislike that feeling so much. In, in, in life, we prepare, or we should, for almost everything. A teacher or a preacher prepares a message or a lesson. The soldier studies and prepares and practices their mission over and over again. Students prepare for tests. Athletes study playbooks, train their bodies, do drills over and over again in preparation. Business people prepare sales presentations. They prepare for the unknown that might come to their business. A surgeon, and I praise God for this, a surgeon practices and prepares a whole lot before they ever pick up a knife to cut someone open. According to one definition, being prepared means you are always in a state of readiness in mind and body to do your duty. You are always in a state of readiness in your mind and body to do your duty. So being prepared involves the mind and the body, both theory and practice. So is Jesus telling us that we should be Christian preppers? Well, in one sense, yes, he is this is no slight to my prepper friends out there. If you are in the uh, the midst of stockpiling water and uh you know and canned goods with the heart to help others uh should uh, should disaster uh come. God bless you for that, but the kind of preparation that we're talking about here is is more important than the physical. It is spiritual preparation. And I'll put it to you this way. If you have trusted in Christ as your Savior, you have certain things. You have eternal life. What that means is that you have been reconciled with God here and now. You have been equipped for kingdom living here and now. You've been given everything you need for life and godliness here and now. You've been allowed to participate in the divine nature here and now. That's you now, not at some distant future date in heaven. It's for kingdom living today, and that is what we need to be prepared for. So if you haven't opened up all those gifts that are yours in Christ that I just outlined to you, now is the time. So how do we, how do we get and stay prepared? The Apostle Paul gives us, I think, a good start in Ephesians 6, chapter 10, or verse 10 through uh, 18, there's a very famous passage where he talks about the armor of God. And Paul starts off with this. He says, be strong in the Lord and in his might. That's an important point because he doesn't say simply be strong because the Bible is not a self-help book. Being spiritually connected to God in Christ is the entry point. That is the door to the equipment room. And once inside, we have to put on that armor. We have to take up that equipment that has been provided so that we can be prepared to stand for Christ no matter what happens. So let's go through what they are. Paul says our first piece of armor is the truth. Truth with a capital T. Jesus is the truth. He's the way and he's the truth. He is full of truth. Popular culture knockoffs of truth might seem appealing. And particularly today, they are much safer if you want to try to avoid being attacked or canceled or what have you. But in the end, any knockoff of the true truth, the truth of Christ, leads to death. Now, we have to be careful. We have to be careful about rushing to the side of one faction or another. You remember those factions in Jerusalem, that they couldn't agree on anything except for two things, that it was important to kill one another and that if you weren't part of either one of their factions and you wanted to leave, that you should also die. That's how they felt. And we're seeing much of the same thing begin begin to unfold today around us. So be careful about running to one faction or another. You want to choose the way of Christ, the truth with a capital T. Then Paul says righteousness, and when he says righteousness, he means God's righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, not hashtag righteousness or hashtag self-righteousness is a better way to put it. Paul was talking about being clothed in the righteousness of Christ and how that should lead us to do the right things for the right reasons in any circumstance. Remember what I said earlier, it is not that we shouldn't respond to injustice or sin because we must because the love of Christ compels us to do so, but we have to respond in the way and righteousness of Jesus himself. And Paul goes on to talk about the gospel of peace. The gospel of peace. We need to understand as Christians that the weapon of war for us, the only one, is love. And that reconciliation, true reconciliation, is only possible in the gospel. Popular culture wants the Garden of Eden. But they want the Garden of Eden without the gardener. They want want the still waters and the green pastures without the good shepherd. They are chasing after the wind, as the writer of Ecclesiastes would say. And we as Christians are called to proclaim the good news that Jesus is the way and not to encourage the lost in a vain pursuit of a godless utopia. So the gospel of peace. Faith, and when I say faith, I don't mean wishful thinking that everything is going to work out, but rather faith that acts on the promises and commands of God. Faith that acts on the promises and commands of God. Commands like seek justice, love mercy, walk humbly. Commands like love your neighbor, whether your neighbor is like you or not. Whether your neighbor likes you or not. And Paul says that we have to be trained in the Word of God, our sword. So rather than downloading into our brains ad infinitum the news or the social media, day after day, as followers of Jesus, it is critical that we download and stock up on the living and active Word of God so that we can answer our friends and our neighbors' not with our clever political arguments, but with the word of God. And then finally, we need to be prepared in prayerful communion with the indwelling spirit of God. Going back to the story that Jesus told, he uses oil in his story for a reason. Throughout scripture, oil represents the presence and the power of God. Jesus says that apart from him or apart from the spirit of Christ, we can do nothing. And if we look at Jesus' example, for 40 days he fasted in the desert. He fasted and he prayed in order to prepare for his earthly ministry. We see that he retreated for a night and prayed before he chose his inner circle of followers. God's word proclaims this to us when God says, if my people who are called by my name, that's you and I, if they will humble themselves and repent, I will turn to them, I will forgive them, and I will heal their land. We need to be prepared in prayer and in communion with the Holy Spirit. Peter understood the lesson that that the Lord had taught him that day. In 1 Peter 3.15, Peter says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Two things that are missing from the popular culture vision of a response to upheaval. Paul, Paul understood the lesson. He said in Second Timothy 4, two to Timothy, he said, Preach the word. Be ready or prepared. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience. Patience. Something also missing. King David understood this lesson. Psalm 119.11, he said, I have stored up your word in my heart. I have prepared my heart by downloading your word into my heart that I might not sin against you. See, God has given you and I, Christian, everything we need to be prepared. It is his unmerited gift to us. But we need to pick up the tools and use them. And we can't wait for calamity to strike to begin preparing for it. So we prepare in the Word, we prepare in prayer, in the Spirit, and in practice as we obey Christ in our day-to-day in community with other believers. But Jesus didn't stop with just being prepared. The, The faithful and wise servant should be prepared, but there's more. The next story he tells is one about a man who leaves his resources with three of his servants. And if you're not familiar with the story, two of his servants... Two of his servants invest what he left with them for a return, and one of his servants buried it in the ground. And then, when his boss returned, he tries to blame his inaction on the boss by questioning his character to his face. Not a particularly wise move, as we see in the story. And just incidentally, it is from this story that we get that phrase that I I, I hope and I pray that every Christian longs to hear, which is, well done, my good and faithful servant. See, so the faithful and wise servant is productive with the master's resources. They are productive with what the Lord has entrusted to them because they're all in with the kingdom purpose. And they're all in with the kingdom purpose because they recognize that they themselves have been rescued from eternal death and given eternal life as a free gift that they've been taken out of the kingdom of darkness and placed in the kingdom of God's Son. And they share that kingdom vision and that zeal that God has, that desire that God has that none should perish without Christ. And so they invest what God has given them. What has God given you to invest and how often do we waste so much time debating how many talents I have compared to how many talents someone else has, or wishing I had talents that I don't have, or investing my talents purely for my own comfort and my own satisfaction? The story of the talents, every time I read it, brings to mind two young men that I had the privilege of knowing here at Rest Reston Bible Church. Two young men who are now with the Lord. Uh, their names are Joseph and Daniel. I don't think they knew each other, but Joseph and Daniel went to be with the Lord at a very young age. Um, The reason that they come to mind for me isn't that they died young, which they did. It's also not that they founded some great evangelistic movement or preached the gospel to millions, because they didn't. The reason they come to mind is that they invested their talents while there was still time to invest. These two young men were both kind, gentle, and yet outspoken representatives of the Prince of Peace. They invested their talents up close and personal in the lives of others unapologetically for the cause of the king. They didn't know the day or the hour, and so they chose to be productive. They were prepared, and they were productive. And I feel pretty confident in saying that they have heard, well done, my good and faithful servant. So where am I investing my life? Where are you investing your life? How are you investing your life? Are you investing for the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of peace, of justice? Or are you just talking about it? Or reading about it? Or posting on social media about it, perhaps? Or maybe you're just going through the motions of life And living and enjoying your personal peace and comfort? Uh, This is a question I ask myself pretty regularly, and it's a provocative question. I realize that, and I realize that it might be causing some tension in you right now. In fact, it might be even making you a little angry at me right now, Um, to which I would say, good, that's good. But remember, these are not my words. These are the words of Jesus. And that Jesus is not calling us to inaction in the face of injustice, in the face of division, in the face of confusion, but to the right action. So, let's move on. We've got one more story that Jesus told, and I think it's going to put a little bit more flesh on the bones of those first two commands to be prepared and to be productive. And now this last story is a little bit less parable and more just a prophetic vision of the final judgment. And in it, we learn that uh, those people who by faith have practiced Jesus' command to love, and he gives various examples of what that might look like in, in feeding and clothing the poor, in refreshing those who need refreshing, to visiting the lonely, practicing hospitality, that as those people by faith were doing that and obeying those commands, they were actually doing them to Jesus. In other words, they were loving their Neighbor, And in loving their neighbor, they were loving God through their neighbor, through their neighbor. The Apostle John kind of brings this point even into more clarity later on when, when he says that if we claim to love God, when we claim as Christians to love God, and yet we harbor hatred or indifference for our fellow human being, we are liars and the truth is not in us. Those are some pretty harsh words, but I think they're harsh words that all of us in the church, including myself, need to think on, especially in times like this. The faithful and wise servant practices love like Jesus. Pastor Menner has said that that you truly believe only that which you act upon, and all the rest is just talk. How convicting is that? A statement like that causes me, first of all, to give thanks for the ongoing boundless grace of God and his forgiveness of my failures because I do not live up to the standard of Christ and neither do you. But it is by faith, by faith, that we're compelled to seek to live in the direction of the example of our Savior. Trusting that he will empower us by his grace to do so and also that he will receive our humble gifts, however small they are, of obedience, and he'll multiply them for his glory. He'll multiply them for his glory. Recently, I had a meeting, a Zoom meeting, one of endless Zoom meetings, with a group of our missionaries in Brazil. And we had uh, an old friend came and led us in a devotional thought. And it was short, but I think it's a devotional thought that I will carry with me um, the rest of my life and that I think brings and put maybe brings into clearer focus what it means to practically love like Jesus. And this was the line that our guest speaker said that morning. He said that the sermon people will remember is the one preached by your life. The sermon people will remember is the one preached by your life. I had to think about that and I it brings to mind Pastor Minner. I'm going to use Pastor Minner as an example here because it's somebody we all know and love. I love Pastor Minner's teaching. I have been nourished spiritually and I have grown spiritually in 23 years of sitting under his teaching, but I can't say that I actually remember specifically any of his preached sermons. Again, I know that they've nourished me, and I know that they've helped me in my spiritual growth and my walk with the Lord for these 23 years, but I, I can't remember a specific one. And I would say that for even maybe more famous preachers, um, if I stop and think about it. But I can tell you this, there is a sermon, various sermons of Pastor Minners that I do remember very clearly. The first one is his Sermon on the Humble Heart. When I sat with him, translating for him in the Amazon with a pastor who was in his 20s, as Pastor Minner peppered him for an hour with questions about where did he get such wisdom and how did he learn to preach like that, until this young pastor looked at me and he said, is this normal? Is it normal for a pastor of his experience and his stature and his age to take such an interest in somebody like me? And sadly, it's not normal. But that is a message, that's a sermon that I will never forget. There's the sermon of his steadfastness in loving this congregation for 40 plus years. Even through times when he's been under attack by the sheep. That is a sermon I will never forget. His close and personal investment in the lives of younger pastors, and I include myself in there, who was younger at one point, (laughs) That's a sermon that is unforgettable. I use Pastor Minner again as an example because it's somebody that we all know, but I know right now where you're sitting, you can think of someone who has preached a sermon with their life that has impacted you and one that you will never forget. So, what is the sermon that you're preaching? Because you're preaching one, whether you like it or not. What is that sermon? As we bring things to a close, I want to kind of go back to where we started. How should the faithful and wise servant of Christ live in difficult times? Popular culture says that we should respond with hashtags, with symbolic gestures, with finger pointing, with violence sometimes, with thought conformity rather than conversation. Popular culture likes to deal with groups Groups either to be hated, groups to be protected, it's impersonal, it stands far off. I can do those kinds of things without getting my hands dirty. I can look and sound virtuous and yet never really do anything. But Jesus does not give us that option. You cannot love at a distance. Think about it. Jesus came to us. He lived with us. He ate with us. He celebrated and mourned with us. He healed us. He died for us. He rose again for us. And it's that Jesus that asks us the question, who then is the faithful and wise servant? They are prepared for action. They are productive in the kingdom. They are practicing love up close and personal. And my hope and my prayer for us as a church is that our Master Jesus would find us doing these things when He returns. Now I'm going to ask you to do something interesting here that I wouldn't ask you to do on a Sunday morning, but because we have the uh, the benefit of being able to hit a pause button, I want you to find a piece of paper, and if you don't have one with you handy right there, you can always hit pause and go find one. Once you have that piece of paper, you can fold it in half so that it can fit in your Bible. Then what I want you to do is across the top of that paper, I want you to write the faithful and wise servant is dot, dot, dot. And then these three words or these three phrases, leaving some space in between for notes, prepared, productive, and practicing love. Leave a little bit of space for each. I'm going to start us off, but I want you to continue this. I want you to continue thinking on this. Searching the scriptures on this with your family, with your friends, with your shepherd group. If you are alone and it's just you and the Lord, that's okay. But I want you to keep digging. I want you to fill in the blanks. Prepared. We're prepared in the Word. We're prepared in prayer, in the Spirit, and in community. How specifically? Search it out. Look for examples in the Word and fill in those blanks. We're productive. What resources have I been given and how am I investing them? Ask yourself the question. Practicing love. You could start with the one and others. The one and others are really just putting meat on the bones of the command to love. Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. And the one and others of the New Testament give us Concrete examples of how to do that. Start there. How can I practice these with actual people, one on one, up close and personal? What am I doing to promote peace through the gospel? Answer the question. Popular culture has a very short attention span, they will move on from whatever trial, tribulation, upheaval, division, confusion that we happen to be in at the moment. But as Christians, we don't have that option. We need to be engaged for the long haul. And my prayer for us as a church is that we would take our cue from the king and not the culture, and that we would live and love as faithful and wise servants. So as we get ready to pray, may the peace of Christ, may the power of his Spirit And may the joy of Almighty God be with all of us as we walk in this world, prepared, productive, and practicing the love of Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do give you thanks for your word. God, in the midst of tribulation, we look to you. We look to you for guidance, for wisdom. God, we want to act as the wise and faithful servant. Faithful to your word, wise in our decisions. Help us, Father, as your people, to continue the ministry of reconciliation, the ministry of peace that was given us by Christ. Father, in all things, may we glorify you May we bring you honor and praise in the matchless name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.